Hello and welcome to Prehistory, the archaeology of the ancient Near East. My name is Jane and today I want to talk to you about Neanderthals. Last week I asked you what you thought of when you thought of a Neanderthal. We have all heard of or seen Neanderthals as slow, stooped, hairy, and generally a bit dim and primitive compared with us oh-so-much-more-superior humans. There is a reason why we think of them this way, but it might not be the reason you think. Neanderthals were first discovered in 1856 in the Kleine Feldhofer cave by quarrymen, who were basically removing that side of the Neander Valley in northwestern Germany. They found some old bones, which they thought might be from old mammals, so they collected a few of these bones as they were tossed out of the cave during quarry work and sent them to a specialist to be looked at. These bones were the first remains of non-human ancient people species to be discovered, or at least the first to be recognized as another ancient species. There was actually a Neanderthal found earlier in the 19th century, but this one was a baby, so it was not until much later that it was recognized as belonging to a different species. The new species was named Homo neanderthalensis, or the man from the Neander Valley. There were arguments about Neanderthals right from the start, with several anatomists claiming that this could not be a new species, but must just be an old human who was deformed. Of course, as more skeletons began to be found, and then when they were found in association with an old and distinctive tool tradition at Les Moustiers Cave, it became harder to argue that these were just deformed humans. By the end of the 19th century, it was pretty much accepted everywhere that Neanderthals were a different, ancient species. This was when the real damage to their reputation was done. In the very early 20th century, skeletons of Neanderthals which were found in excavation within Europe were sent to eminent anatomists to be studied. One of these was Marcel Boulle, who studied multiple Neanderthals. At about the same time, he studied an older fellow from La Chapelle aux Saints and another from La Ferrassie. These were very well preserved and almost complete skeletons, and they're more or less the basis of how we have seen Neanderthals for the last century. I guess it was just bad luck, but Boulle had for study, at about the same time, two of the oldest and most battered Neanderthals that we have ever found. They're not quite the oldest and most battered, but these two older men were not exactly in mint condition either. Over the course of his life, La Farassi had broken his collarbone, his shoulder blade, his hip, and the top of his thigh bone. He also had arthritis in several joints, including his fingers and toes, which were swollen and curved as a result. The man from La Chapelle aux Saints was a little older than the man from La Farassi. His teeth were worn down, and about half of them were missing. He had once broken a rib, but his main problem was bone degeneration and arthritis across his body. This was a pair of creaky old men who had lived tough lives. Bulls seemed to have missed the impact of their ages and injuries when he looked at their bones. He reconstructed the La Chapelle Saint skeleton incorrectly, giving it a bent back and stooped legs, as though this would have been normal for the species and not just because this was an old man with creaky bones. Drawings of this reconstruction went the early 20th century equivalent of viral, and we ended up with a view of Neanderthals' stooped, hairy knuckle-draggers, which has stayed with us ever since. Okay, so if we think about it, much of what we think of with Neanderthals in our popular imagination is really down to this biased view of them. It was the 19th and very early 20th century, and people had some pretty different views about human evolution, 
how the differences in the way that people look related to their social and mental capacity, and a lot of other odd notions, which we would like to think that us better informed 21st century people have moved away from. Of course, these 19th century ideas about humans and how we differ have left some hangovers in the way that people think today. One of these is the way that some of us still think about Neanderthals. There is no getting away from it. Whether or not you think that Neanderthals were just as smart and as capable as humans is something of a divide in archaeology, and it's hard to talk about them without getting into this major argument within the field. It's not so much that one group of researchers has directly stated that Neanderthals were dimwit primitives, whom the other side give too much credit, but for some arguments, it's actually not that far off. I can't tell you if this is just because they look different, or if it's because they died out and we did not. What I can tell you is that some of the arguments in Middle Paleolithic research, both in the Near East and in Europe, have been going on for a very long time, and some people are pretty dug in to their positions. I'm going to try to look at both sides of the argument here, but you'll probably be able to guess more or less where I stand on Neanderthals. The first thing about Neanderthals, and where everyone agrees, is that Neanderthals evolved in Europe. They evolved basically from Homo erectus, which evolved in Europe into Homo antecessor and then into Homo heidelbergensis. Unless you take the view that part of the Homo erectus finds from Africa include Homo heidelbergensis, in which case they went into Europe about 800,000 years ago and then turned into Homo neanderthalensis, and Homo antecessor fits in there somewhere. Regardless of how we got to Homo heidelbergensis, while they were living in Europe, over time, we see some Neanderthal-like features building up in the bones. And by about 400 to 500,000 years ago, or at least by 300,000 years ago, depending on how you classify the bones which we have, we move from finding Heidelbergensis in Europe to finding early Neanderthals. In keeping with the theme of archaeology dividing everything into three, we can think of Neanderthals as early, classic, and late, with their appearance possibly changing a bit through time, at least between the early and classic Neanderthals. We have a lot of skeletons of Neanderthals, far more than for any people species which we've talked about before, over 400. These don't just come from Europe, and we have more than a dozen just from the Near East. There are some indications that the Neanderthals from the Near East were a little bit different from the ones in Europe, with slightly less pronounced facial features, but it's hard to tell from the current set of skeletons if this was a gradient of variation across Neanderthals more generally from east to west, or if Neanderthals may have changed a bit through time as a lot of the Near Eastern Neanderthals come from a little bit later. Generally, Neanderthals were pretty similar in size to humans, standing about 162 centimeters or about 5 foot 4 inches tall, and weighing about 67 kilos or about 147 pounds. They had stockier bodies, with thicker bones and slightly shorter legs relative to their height than we do, and they were more barrel-chested. So we're not thinking about a ballet dancer here, so much as a rugby player or a football linebacker. Their bones in the shape of their ribcage suggest that they would have been very strong, probably stronger than us, although maybe not the ripping your leg off stage. They would have been very fast over a short distance, especially over rough ground, and they probably would have made better sprinters than us, but they would not have been as good as we are at long-distance running. So we're probably talking about someone who hunted by sneaking up on and ambushing animals, and not someone who would have chosen to run them down as a first option. 
They had more pronounced faces than we do, with a bigger nose and bigger eyebrows, although not the distinctive eyebrows, like Homo erectus. And they didn't have the high foreheads that we have. They also did not have chins. None of our ancient people species had a distinct chin at the end of their jaw. That seems to be something distinctive to us humans. So Neanderthals did not look like us, but they were also not as different as the other people that we've talked about. If a Neanderthal walked down the street today, you would see a slightly short, stocky person with a bit of a craggy face, but not really anything which would have drawn your attention. This bulkier shape and the slightly bigger nose were originally argued to be the result of adaptation to colder climates in Europe. Now, we do have evidence of Neanderthals living in Central Europe, even in the more northern parts of Europe. We even have evidence of Neanderthals all the way out in Siberia, or at least the southern bits of Siberia. These more northerly finds come from warmer time periods, though. So it looks like Neanderthals were adapted to more northern climates, but those northern climates were actually the southern parts of Europe, where the cold periods were not as severe. Okay, cold periods. We can't really talk about Neanderthals without first getting into something that I haven't mentioned yet. The Pleistocene. We think of the Pleistocene, the age that comes before the Holocene, which is where we are, or where we were until recently, but that's another matter, as the last ice age. The last ice age was in the Pleistocene, but it wasn't all cold all the time. The Pleistocene lasted from about the time of the origin of Homo erectus two and a half million years ago up until about 11,700 years ago. From looking at ice cores and a bunch of other evidence about changes in climate, we know that things changed a lot over this time. Sometimes we had ice ages where temperatures dropped, glaciers grew and spread and sucked up enough water that sea levels dropped. In other times, we had warm periods. These rotated back and forth through time, with some ice ages, or glacials, being colder than others. Each of these changes in climate gets a name and a number. We call these oxygen isotope stages because the water being sucked up into glaciers changed the proportion of the oxygen isotopes left in the non-frozen water, which then evaporated out of the sea and fell as snow on glaciers in Greenland or in other cold places where we've taken the ice cores. These changes in the oxygen isotopes are part of how we reconstruct changes in the climate in the past, so they're used to name the various cold and warm periods. The easy way to remember them is that the even-numbered stages, usually called OIS stages for short, are the glacial or the cold periods, and the odd-numbered stages are the interglacial or the warm periods. When we look at Neanderthal sites in the more northern parts of Europe or the more northern parts of Asia, these come from the even-numbered OIS stages. So they were occupied during the warm stages, but then the Neanderthals either moved south or died out when it got cold again. Apart from height and looks, there are a few other things which we know about Neanderthals, or which we can guess based on other things that we know. A lot of research and argument has gone into figuring out whether or not Neanderthals could talk. This goes back to the main argument about how human-like Neanderthals were compared with us. Humans can talk, and our speech is one of the things which we see as setting us apart from the other animals. So if Neanderthals could talk, then that's something special that we would have had in common. In the brain, there are two areas that deal with speech. The Broca's area, which deals with making words, and the Vernix area, which deals with putting those words together into speech. These are connected and they make a pair of bumps on the outer surface of the brain just along the left temporal lobe. 
If you put your hand to the left side of your head, slightly behind the top of your ear, you're touching the speech parts of your brain. In order to make speech happen, you also need your vocal cords, your larynx, to be in the right part of your throat and to be big and flexible enough to get out the range of sounds in a controlled way. We have a lot of Neanderthal skulls, and as you might expect, we have taken a good look at them to see if they have the little hollows on the inside which would fit the brocas in the vernix area. They do. Now, we don't have Neanderthal vocal cords. These are soft and squishy bits of tissue that don't tend to preserve for us to find and study. There is a little bone in the throat, though, the hyoid bone, which is attached to the muscles of the tongue and the throat, including the vocal cords. The shape of the hyoid and the way that it attaches to all of these muscles and fleshy bits tells us a lot about the workings of the throat, including the vocal cords. The downside is that the hyoid is small and delicate and tends to be damaged or destroyed with time. The upside is that we have found a very well-preserved hyoid from a Neanderthal excavated from Kebara Cave in the Levant. This hyoid looks a lot like ours, and it seems to have sat low in the throat like ours do something which is necessary to get the wide and precise range of sounds for speech. So, based on their anatomy, Neanderthals would absolutely have been able to speak. The counter-argument here is that while they may have been capable of speech, we don't actually know if they did speak. This would of course assume that all of these developments in the brain and the throat were necessary parts of the evolution for speech in humans, but in Neanderthals these were done just for fun. I leave you to decide on that one. The next thing that we're pretty sure of is a bit of a leap, but with reasons behind it. We are pretty sure that Neanderthals wore clothes. We don't have any of these clothes, as we're most likely talking about animal skins and furs, and these of course would not have preserved over the tens of thousands of years. However, even in warmer periods, Europe, and also lots of the Near East, would have gotten pretty cold in the winter. Central and Northern Europe, and the mountains of Anatolia or the Zagros, and let's not forget Siberia, would have been very cold in the winter. We're living in an interglacial period right now, and I don't know about you, but if I was going to be out and about in Siberia in January, I would really want to have some clothes on. Apart from living in areas with cold winters, one of the things that makes us think that Neanderthals wore clothes are the presence of scrapers. I mentioned these before, little stone tools designed to be held between the fingers and, well, scraped along something. These first turn up in the Levant at the very end of the Lower Paleolithic, and they're all over the place in the Middle Paleolithic, in the Near East as well as in Europe. Scrapers are basically good for two sorts of things. Scraping wood, along with other tools that can be used for woodworking, and scraping out the fleshy sides of hides when tanning them into leather or furs. Studies in the use wear of some of these scrapers has shown that they were indeed used to scrape down hides, which suggests that Neanderthals may have figured out how to preserve animal skins. These might have been just for blankets, or for tents, as I mentioned last week, and they might have also been worn. I'm not suggesting that Neanderthals were walking around in a well-tailored suit. Making tailored clothing requires some extra types of tools, which we don't have evidence for in the Middle Paleolithic. But leather or furs could have been tied together and then tied onto the body with strips of leather passed through little cuts in the animal hides. It might not have been elegant, but it would have been warm. 
There are some other technological achievements, which we know that Neanderthals mastered, which also suggested that clothing would not have been beyond them as an invention. I mentioned last week the use of bitumen to haft spearheads onto spears. This is not an isolated case. Bitumen does not occur everywhere in the Near East, and it doesn't occur at all in Europe. But Middle Paleolithic research has shown that Neanderthals had other ways of gluing points onto wood. In Europe, we have sites where spearheads were glued to spears, and also stone knives glued to wooden handles, the wood having rotted away, but leaving a perfect dark outline of the wood itself in the dirt, using birch bark pitch. Birch bark pitch is another naturally sticky substance, but in order to make the sort of pitch that the Neanderthals used, it not only had to be collected, but it then had to be boiled down at a really high temperature in order to turn it into the sort of sticky tar. So Neanderthals had not only figured out glue, they had worked out how to create a suitable glue which does not occur naturally and which required high temperatures in careful cooking to make. Based on some preserved plant fibers found twisted together from a site in France, Neanderthals may also have had string for tying the glued points onto spears, but might also have been handy for holding their clothes together. In the Near East, the Lower Paleolithic transitions into the Middle Paleolithic a bit before 200,000 years ago. In the Levant, this is currently thought to be about 215,000 years ago, but in other parts of the Near East, this timing might be as early as 250,000 years ago. Paleolithic research is not as big of a focus for every area, so there are some gaps in our knowledge as to exactly when Neanderthals moved into the region. This is complicated by two issues. Early Middle Paleolithic sites are not as common generally, in keeping with the pattern that we've already seen of sites getting harder to find the farther back in time that you go. Also, not all of the sites which we know about are dated, as determining the age of things this far back is complicated, expensive, and not always possible, especially for sites which were excavated more than a couple of decades ago. However, it looks like we can be pretty comfortable that Neanderthals were living in at least a few places of the Near East, such as the Caucasus and the Zagros, possibly by about 200,000 years ago, and more reliably by about 150,000 years ago. By 100,000 years ago, we have good evidence of them present across the Near East, and by at least 75,000 years ago, Neanderthals had also moved into the Levant, replacing the anatomically modern humans who were living there. We do have some gaps, though. Neanderthals do not seem to have been all that big at living in arid areas or on the open steppe. What this means is that, at least as far as we know, if you look at a map of the Near East, you're looking at Neanderthals pretty much keeping to the more rugged, hilly, and mountainous areas where there would have been lots of forest. Studies which have been done on the locations of Neanderthal sites, as well as looking at the remains of plants and animals which were found in them, strongly suggests that Neanderthals liked wetter and more wooded areas, as well as areas with variation in the terrain. If we look at the cave base camp sites, in every area where we have checked, these tend to be places between upland and lowland areas, such as halfway up the side of a valley. This means that Neanderthals would have been able to take advantage of a wider range of local environments without having to travel too far from home on any given trip. These base camps are like the ones that we talked about last week, one of a series of homes that people move between, but which were made reasonably comfortable even when visits were short. It looks like the number of Neanderthals living in the landscape increased over time, 
We have evidence of this from the Levant, although it's hard to tell if this was the case for every region across the Near East. As far as we can tell, Neanderthals had a more varied diet in the Near East, and maybe also in Southern Europe, than they did in Central Europe, where there's less evidence for eating plants. Isotope studies of some Neanderthals from France suggest that they had diets similar to wolves living around the same time. In other words, meaty. This is only looking at one area, though, and we have found lots of plant foods from excavations of Neanderthal sites in the Near East, so they were likely less choosy about eating their vegetables. When it came to hunting animals, they were also much more interested in going after large animals and far less interested in hunting or trapping the smaller options. Looking at the relationship between the Neanderthal sites and animals, it's been suggested that they most closely match the ranges of wild goats, wild sheep, and gazelle. But they also hunted a lot of other animals, like deer and wild equids. Of course, this doesn't tell us why Neanderthals replaced humans in the Levant. Well, one pretty good bit of evidence for why this might have happened might be when it happened. If you remember the changes between glacial and interglacial phases, well, the change between OIS-5, warm, and OIS-4, cold, happened, well, can you guess? About 75,000 years ago. This may have forced humans back south, out of the Levant, and opened the way for Neanderthals to also push south into warmer areas. Changes in the climate of the Near East, especially in the Levant, where we're further south and near the coast, do not seem to have been as extreme between warm and cold phases. Or rather, the cold phases don't seem to have been as cold, compared with what we see to the north and the west of the Near East. However, it is really hard to ignore the coincidence of the timing, so the change from warm to cool phases was probably significant in some way. Of course, having expanded all the way down the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, why didn't the Neanderthals keep going and expand into Africa as well? Well, there are two possible reasons for this, and which is more significant depends on how you think about Neanderthals. First, pushing farther south into Africa probably would have meant crossing the Negev. These days, the Negev is a desert, although it looks like it might have been wetter and greener at some points in the Pleistocene. It may have been too arid to be of interest to the Neanderthals, though, so they may not have bothered with the different landscape and wanted to stay hunting in their nice moist forests. One other reason why Neanderthals may have stopped is that there might have been humans living in the Negev as well, as well as in some other areas of the southern parts of the Near East, but we'll talk about them next week. For now, the important thing is that Neanderthals expanded all over the Near East, but they seem to have been particularly interested in choosing certain types of landscape to live in. Okay, so we know that Neanderthals successfully lived pretty much all over Europe, spread out into Asia as far as Siberia, and lived all over the Near East. They were good hunters. We talked last week about them targeting young and fat animals of prime hunting age, and not just going after the old and the sick. They had good tools, some of which were hafted as spears or glued to wooden handles. They probably wore clothes, and they may have slept in tents. But does any of this suggest that they were as smart as we are, or that we should think of them as human? Well, the birch bark glue was a big technical achievement, so that certainly suggests that they were pretty smart. They made good use of the landscape, too, and they chose their home bases with care rather than just taking any old cave. Still, though, these things don't make them like us. After all, we take care of our surroundings. 
We keep our homes clean and tidy, or at least we like to think that we do. We like pretty things, and we surround ourselves, even cover ourselves, with objects that express who we are. We take care of each other, and we bury our loved ones when they die. Surely these are the things that make us human, and which make us very different from Neanderthals. Yeah, so that was the setup. Guess what? One of the things which we do that is uniquely human really is not uniquely human. We bury our dead. As it turns out, Neanderthals buried their dead too. This is one of those parts of how we see Neanderthals that is a big area of argument. We have found Neanderthal burials for decades. It's one of the reasons why we have so many skeletons of theirs to look at. Of course, if you do not think of Neanderthals as anywhere near as smart or as complex as humans, then burial is going to be a bit of a big thing to swallow. So, naturally, some people argue continuously that these are not burials. These burials are found in caves, so the people must have just died in their sleep and been left behind when the others moved away. Of course, the fact that these skeletons were not disturbed by carnivores, or moved around by the elements, or that there are literally hundreds of them and we don't have any evidence of such a thing before Neanderthals, is generally skated over when people argue against Neanderthal burial. These arguments about burial bring us to Shanidar. Actually, there really is no way to discuss Neanderthals in the Near East, or Neanderthal burial in general, without coming, in the end, to Shanidar. Shanidar Cave sits in the Zagros Mountains of the Kurdistan region of northern Iraq. It was excavated for a couple of decades, starting in the 1950s, and it's one of the key sites where people divide in how we think about Neanderthals. Shanidar has the normal things which we find in a Middle Paleolithic base camp cave site, including animal bones, stone tools, hearths, etc., and it was occupied about 75 to 50,000 years ago. What makes it interesting is that it was also a Neanderthal cemetery. Now, we've had a few caves that have yielded a lot of Neanderthal bones, including ones which have a series of intact and undisturbed Neanderthal burials. What makes Shandadar special is not just that it had a series of Neanderthal burials grouped close together in the cave. The excavators even took photos of these while they were still in the ground, only half uncovered, and we can see them laid out or curled up in the fetal position, like we find with our own human graves. In total, these excavations found about 10 Neanderthals. The big one, and the one which makes Shanidar such a big deal in the Neanderthal debate, is Grave 4, or Shanidar 4 as it was named. This was the grave of a woman, which was discovered during the excavations. They wanted to protect it and to be able to excavate the skeleton carefully back in the lab at a museum. So the whole block of dirt containing the skeleton was exposed and wrapped up in plaster. Then, and it pains me every time I think about this, they had to get it to the museum. Which they did by tying this plaster-encased block of dirt onto the top of a taxi. I cannot say this without cringing, even though it was nearly 50 years ago. We have gotten better. No one would do this today, but really on the roof of a taxi. Anyway. When this block of dirt made it back to the museum and was excavated, they discovered that there were actually three skeletons in this burial. It's hard to say, what with the shaking about on the roof of the taxi, if these three, the woman and two men, were buried together, or if the two men were buried first and then the grave of the woman was dug in later and she was put on top almost in between the two men. 
Now, a triple burial is very interesting, but it is Shandidar IV herself who is the cause of all of this controversy. It's not because she was a woman. We have female Neanderthal burials, and that's also really not unique. When they excavated out the burials, there were some funny clumps of sediment on top of the bones of Shandidar IV, which were collected and sent off for further study. Inside these clumps of dirt, specialists found pollen grains from flowers. The interpretation was that Shandidar IV, either on her own or as part of a triple burial, was buried with flowers laid over her body as grave goods. This is why Shandidar is so controversial. Grave 4, Shandidar 4, has also got another name, the Flower Burial. Now, if you are one of the people who firmly believe that Neanderthals were way too primitive to have done something so human as to bury their dead, then the suggestion of grave goods is absolutely beyond the pale. The difficulty is that the excavators at Shanadar did not take control samples from other parts of the cave to check and see if these also had flower pollen. If flower pollen was not found in other parts of the cave, but was found in the burial, it would be pretty strong evidence that there were flowers put into the burial. But like I said, this was several decades ago, and this sort of sampling wasn't really being done yet. As a result, those who argue against Neanderthal burial claim that this pollen could have just come from flowers that were growing naturally outside the cave, and it was just blown into the cave and into the burial by the wind. After all, why would we think of Neanderthals as burying their dead with grave goods when we have no evidence of them being self-aware and signaling self-identity, such as through personal decorations, art, myths, stories, and all the important parts of human culture? Yeah, once again, that was a setup. Okay, we don't have any evidence of Neanderthals having myths or telling stories. We don't have any evidence of these from humans, really, until humans figure out writing, so we can take myths and stories out of the argument for now. But what about personal decorations or art? Well, we do actually have evidence for this, but as you can probably guess, each piece of evidence is heavily disputed by the Neanderthals were primitive side of archaeology. First, we have evidence for music. Okay, we have one find of a musical instrument. From Slovenia, we have what is known as the Dvije Baba flute. As you might guess, Dvije Baba is the site where it was found, and it dates to about 50,000 years ago. This is one of the lower limb bones of a young cave bear, which has had the ends removed and the shaft tidied up and then three holes were pecked out of the shaft in a row. If you blow into one end of this bone, it makes a whistling noise, and you can change the pitch by covering up one or more of the holes with your fingers. It makes a pretty nice musical instrument, and I'll put a video on the website of somebody playing a replica of this. There are two problems, though. First, some have argued that just because it can be used as a flute does not necessarily prove that this was its original intention. The second is that this was the only one that we've ever found. Of course, if you're digging a middle Paleolithic site before the discovery of the Devia Baba flute, would you have been looking for one? A lot of these sites were also excavated in the 19th and early 20th century, and people did not necessarily keep the bones from these digs. Even when they did, up until the last 60 years or so, most excavators would only have kept the bigger or more complete bones, the ones where the ends were still preserved. Bits of bone shaft, which is exactly what the Devia Baba flute was made from, were usually considered not to be useful for study and were just thrown away. 
So we can't be sure if we only ever have found one, and we'll be stuck in this position until another one is found, if that ever happens. Where we can be a bit more confident is when we look at evidence for decoration, both personal decoration as well as other kinds. The evidence for this is spread out, so we have to keep looking at the entire Neanderthal area here and not just in the Near East. First, we have ornaments. From both the Near East and Europe, we have a few sites from Neanderthals where shells with naturally occurring holes have been found. If you look at the holes in these shells under a microscope, you can see little grooves on the edges of the holes, which are made when a shell is suspended on a string or a thin strip of leather and then attached as a pendant. Whether or not this was attached around the neck, the wrist, or tied onto the clothing, we can't say. We also have some animal teeth, which have grooves around the root of the tooth, or in some cases have holes drilled through the root, and which also have marks from being suspended, like a necklace or a bracelet or something else. We also have ochre, which is a type of iron oxide, and which makes a red or a yellow pigment and can be used a bit like a drawing pastel, and these have also been found on Neanderthal sites. Sometimes these are found as raw chunks, and sometimes one or more sides have been ground down from their being used to paint things. We think that these may have been used to paint the face of the body, although some of the shell pendants which we've found also seem to have been colored with ochre. We've also found other pigments, such as hematite or pyrite, which seem to have been used in the same way. So we can now also think of a Neanderthals not only as wearing clothing, but maybe also with red, yellow, and black painted decorations on their faces and a necklace made of shells and animal teeth. Of course, each of these finds is argued by the Neanderthal as primitive types, and often when they do, they talk about each as though it was the only such case of decoration ever found, and they just happen to forget the other examples from across the Neanderthal range. Last, and by no means least, although the newest and therefore still extremely hotly contested, we have Neanderthal art. Okay, from the Near East, we have no Neanderthal cave paintings. We also don't really have human cave paintings in the Upper Paleolithic. If you think of the extensive and beautiful cave paintings that we see in Europe all over the Upper Paleolithic, places like Lascaux or Altamira, that's not really the case in the Near East as far as we know at the moment. However, these cave paintings in Europe are not all the same. There is a wide range of types and styles of painting. Some of these paintings are also now being redated as the methods for dating them have been proved. If a bit of cave wall has dribbled thin sheets of flowstone, where the minerals from the stone melting in water from the cave and are literally flowing across the surface to re-harden. If a bit of the cave wall has deposited flowstone over the top of these paintings, this new deposit can now be dated, and we can have a date where we know that the painting behind it has to be older. Well, for several of these cave paintings in Europe, we have now been able to determine the ages, and some of them are about 60,000 years old. Humans did not arrive in Europe until about 40,000 years ago, so there's a pretty comfy buffer there where the only person around who could have made these paintings were the Neanderthals. Of course, there is a debate, and some people essentially refuse to believe that these dates may be correct. This is where I like to point out that when the famous Upper Paleolithic cave paintings of Europe were first discovered, there was a pretty firm group of researchers who categorically stated that Paleolithic humans were far too primitive to ever have made such art, and that these paintings must be much more recent, 
with anyone arguing that they were made in the Paleolithic being simply wrong, or at worst, delusional, or being frauds. It was only when many such painted caves were found that these people came to accept that they had been wrong. So, in the case of Neanderthal personal adornment and art, I suppose, only time will tell. In the case of Neanderthal burial, specifically in the case of the flower burial, there is some news. Shanidar is back under excavation, and they have found another skeleton. This one from actually pretty much right next to the flower burial, both of them being 60 to 70,000 years ago. This burial is of a middle-aged individual who is lying on their back with one arm placed across the chest and the other curled up next to their head. While this new skeleton is still being studied, the advantage of over 50 years is that the excavation methods and specialist studies have made some big advances. One of these is a research specialty called geoarchaeology. In essence, this is the archaeology of dirt. It takes a lot of the methods from the study of geology and applies them to archaeology, so we can look at how sediments build up, when they're changed, and what they're made of. One of the things that geoarchaeologists can do involves taking a pillar of dirt from an excavation, taking it home, carefully wrapped, and this time not on the roof of a taxi, and putting it in a machine which creates a vacuum and injects a resin very slowly into all of the spaces where there used to be air in this block of dirt. And this makes a solid chunk, which they can then slice and cut off and ground down so that any changes in the layers of the dirt in a cave or any other site can be looked at in detail. This geoarchaeological study of the new grave found at Shanidar shows that the margins of the grave have been cut, or in other words, that this grave was definitely dug into earlier deposits of dirt, and that this individual was not just left lying on the surface of the cave. This is an actual pre-dug special grave. Another thing which was found from the geoarchaeology is that the dirt that sits just on the very top of the skeleton contains a lot of little fragments of plants. These are being studied just now, along with studies of pollen from this dirt just on top of the skeleton and from other parts of the cave. Given the arguments about the possible presence of flowers in the burial of Shandidar IV, who was buried right next to this new burial, it will be very interesting to see what these studies show. Based on a lot of burials, some personal ornaments, some art, and maybe some musical instruments, it increasingly starts to look like Neanderthals were pretty human. Not that we're the same species, but more that they acted a lot like us. There is another fairly good indicator that we can think of them as pretty human. We seem to have thought so too. Based on studies of the DNA from Neanderthal skeletons and from modern human populations, we have Neanderthal DNA. Everyone alive today who has ancestry from outside Africa has 1-4% to of their DNA coming from Neanderthals. This suggests that at least some of us humans must have thought that the Neanderthals were like us, since we had babies with them. It's hard to tell how often this happened, and based on the low percentage of Neanderthal DNA in people today, it was probably not the case that humans and Neanderthals paired off every time. However, in order for Neanderthal DNA to be so consistently present in people across multiple continents after thousands of years, we would also have had to make babies with them definitely more than once, and probably pretty regularly. 
Thus, we have Neanderthals, our ancient cousins, not entirely our ancestors, but also not entirely not our ancestors, looking a little different than we do, but as we learn more about them, starting to look and act a lot more like us than we could have imagined 150 years ago when we first learned of their existence. Next week, we'll finish off the Middle Paleolithic by talking about ourselves, or us as we were when we were anatomically modern humans and how we lived in the Near East during the Middle Paleolithic. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me at prehistorypodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to find any related links to the Dvia Baba flute or any of the other things that we've talked about today, you can find these on the website at prehistorypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give me a rating and a review on your podcast platform of choice to help other people find the podcast as well. And of course, come and listen next week when we discuss ourselves in the Middle Paleolithic. <laughs>